Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me, as always, is Simon Elliott, head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. It's been a very hot week outside the uh, work environment, Simon, but it, uh, what's been going on in the markets? Has it been a lot of action or has it been uh, rather cooler in the markets? Definitely cooler. I would say that uh, the market uh, seems to have lost a bit of its impetus. Uh, the FTSE all share will probably end up down around about 2% for the week. Uh, investment companies will also be down probably not as badly as the uh, the wider UK market. But we've seen discounts drift out a little bit, going from 6 to 6.5%. And I think it's fair to say that trading volumes are easing as well. It feels as if uh, the market is um, either getting a little bit cautious on the back of a second wave type fears, or people are preparing for a bit of a summer break. Right. So but we're still within that kind of uh, sort of 5 to 10% range on the, in terms of discounts overall that we've talked about before. So there's, we're not kind of breaking out of that yet. Well, there have been the usual slew of results and uh, presentations by a lot of companies in the investment trust sector this week. We're going to start, as we do so often, with the equity income sector, which is very popular amongst investors looking for yield in particular. We've heard from uh, a couple this week, but let's start with Lord Adventure. Perhaps we could explain what's uh, somewhat different about them compared to some of the other trusts which make up the UK equity income sector. So Lord Debenture is a genuinely interesting investment trust company. So you have an equity portfolio there, which is probably just over 80% or so of the NES assets. And that's run by James Henderson and Laura Fall of uh, Janice Henderson. So a uh, very experienced uh, investment team, and uh, probably most people will know them best for managing the Lowland Investment Company. But the, the rest of the company, the rest of the investment company is actually an independent professional services business. And that's valued at about, or it was 18%. Uh, of the NAV just recently. Now, this provides a whole range of uh, services, pension, trustee, corporate services. And what that means is that actually it generates uh, quite an interesting revenue stream in its own right. So roughly speaking, it probably provides about 35% uh, of the revenue, which obviously goes to generate the dividend. Um, So it's a little bit of a different story. The NAV will move around quite often with the equity portfolio. Um, but the revenue side, the dividend side of it, there's quite a lot of the heavy lifting is, is done by that business, the independent professional services business. And what that means, it allows the managers to be a little bit flexible when it comes to making their investment decisions. So there's a curious thing in a way, isn't it? It's a curious uh, mixture of two different businesses, but you would have thought it actually has rather proved its worth in the current environment when, when yield is hard to, to, to come by. Uh, and you, of course, it would be very difficult, I think, for any investment trust to come to the market now and say, well, we've also got this other business on the side. I think that would be perhaps rather unusual. I don't know if you agree with me about that. Uh, But uh, maybe it's the kind of model people should be looking at. It is a a very well-established entity. It's been going many, many years. And I think you're right. To try and launch something exactly like this at this precise moment in time would be tricky. But, uh, you know, for uh, investors or potential investors, I guess the attraction would be a yield of 5.6% based on the current share price. And it's also trading on a bit of a discount as well, 9% discount at the moment. So there'd be those people who, who believe that that is an attractive combination. And how does that compare? You mentioned that the same team manager, Lowland, which is also in the same sector. How do the two compare? I mean, what would be the different, the main difference between them apart from the fact that they have this other business in Lord Adventure? Yeah, so there will be some commonality in terms of the portfolio. Uh, obviously, the same management team, they'll, uh, and they kind of manage it in a, in a not dissimilar way. 
Um, in terms of the performance, uh, Lord Debenture does have the, the, the bragging rights on Lowland. Certainly, if you look over a, a five or three year NAV total return period, uh, Lord Debenture uh, is, is stronger at present. It's fair to say Lowland's had a tricky year, particularly this year, whereas Lord Debenture's held up a, a little bit better. Not least, it's assisted, they have uh, around about 20% of the portfolio invested overseas. So, companies listed outside of the UK marketplace. And it wasn't too long ago that it's seen as a global fund, although the UK was always the mainstay of the, of the equity portfolio. So the UK is now probably of the equity portfolio, it's probably about 80% and 20% overseas, but that's obviously helped the performance as well. So that's right. I think it was, uh, it was changed sectors last year, I believe in 2019, it was moved out of the, one of the global sectors into the UK equity income sector to better reflect what it does. We've also heard this week from another trust in the equity income sector, and that is Merchants. What can you tell us about what they've been doing or what they've been saying this week? So Merchants is run by Simon Gogol of uh, Allianz Global Investors. Simon's a hugely experienced uh, investor. It's been a trickier year for him, I think it's fair to say. He's got a kind of value pro-cyclical bias uh, that's that's been tricky in these kind of markets. And also Merchants is one of the more highly geared funds in the UK equity income space. So it was about 20% geared at the, at the end of May. They're saying that the portfolio is quite, there's quite a lot of what people would regard as blue chip names there, very familiar names such as uh, GlaxoSmithKline, BHP, Shell, British American, uh, Imperial Tobacco, and those kind of things. I think probably the key question that many people look at with merchants is how it's looking in terms of its yield. I mean, it's yielding a, on a historical basis just short of 7% at the moment. So that will be one of the highest yields in that UK equity income peer group. So the question is, is that sustainable? I mean, in its last financial year, the dividend was 110% covered by revenue. Clearly, that revenue will go down this year as a function of what's happening in the UK marketplace. But they do have quite a substantial revenue reserve and a record of 38 years consecutive growth. Uh, and also, they have actually declared their first interim dividend for their financial year to the end of January 2021. And they've, uh, they've kept that dividend up. And I think certainly the intention from, from the board is that they want to preserve that dividend record. It is interesting just looking at the, the record of the UK equity income sector. I should just mention the tickers of those ones we've just talked about for those who look who are interested in following up. Lord Adventure is LWDB, Lowland is LWI, and Merchants is MRCH. That's quite a recognisable one. But there has been a price you pay, has there not, if you're an investor, for getting the kind of yields that you can get out of the UK equity income sector and where the investment trust structure is very helpful as we've discussed many times but if you look back over the five-year record i mean quite a few of these trusts have not actually seen much capital growth have they i mean you, you get the income but you don't necessarily get capital growth and uh, in fact lord adventure i think stands out on that measure does it not yeah i mean uh, you know obviously there is a range of performance records in that uk equity income peer group you'll, you'll have funds in there such as finsbury growth and income the nick train vehicle uh, which has a very strong long-term performance record, but the, its dividend is a lot lower. We've seen a lot of dividend contraction uh, over the years as its kind of capital has accelerated ahead. Um, but that's certainly the best performer over five years. You're right, Lord Ventures performed very well. Um, some of the Aberdeen Standard Investments uh, stable, Murray Income and Dunedin Income Growth, have got very strong five-year track records. But then at the other end, there have been those funds that have struggled, including things like Perpetual Income and Growth. We've mentioned, we talked about that before in Temple Bar, where both we're waiting to find out what's going to happen in terms of their future management. So there is a whole range of performance records. I think it's fair to say those have been more minded to growth type companies have probably benefited, have done better. Those with a bit more of a cyclical value bias and lowland Aberdeen standard equity income would be in that camp. 
uh, have undoubtedly struggled over that period. So that's been the, the, the key difference. But it remains a very important sector for investment trust uh, shareholders. It's perhaps worth mentioning also before we move on that um, the three we've mentioned, Lord Adventure, Lowland and Merchants, all have uh, a quite significant, they're quite large, they have uh, quite a lot of liquidity. Uh, we're talking uh, Lord Adventure about 600, 600 million, I think, market cap when I last looked. Lord Adventure just getting on for 300 million, not quite, and uh, Merchants 465 or something in that kind of region. So they're all quite of decent size. So they do have that, uh, that advantage as well. And of course, as you say, we'll be looking quite closely at what the new management arrangements for the, for the ones you mentioned. There's been quite a lot of change in the sector. Let's move on from UK equity income to equally well-known, but uh, slightly different uh, investment trust, which is Monks. Can you tell us what they've been saying this week? There's going to be a change in manager there, I believe. Yes, a uh, different situation. So Monks is part of the Bailey Gifford uh, stable. Uh, this fund invests in global equities. And over the last five years or so, it's been managed by a chap called Charles Plowden, who's a very experienced investor. He's a senior investment partner at Bailey Gifford. Uh, and his two co-managers, Spencer Adair and Malcolm McCall. But actually, to be fair, it was a couple of months ago now, but they announced that Charles Plowden would be retiring, but not until the end of uh, April next year. So he's in his um, lap of honour, I think we can say. But uh, just catching up with him this week, it's fair to say he's been as, uh, as active or his investment team has been as active as it ever was. Initially, back in March, there was a huge review of the portfolio, quite a diversified portfolio, 120 names. They, they kind of identified the, the ones that would struggle uh, in this environment that we now find ourselves in. And they did sell a number of the names, including some of the bank holdings they have. And then they kind of moved on as the, as the market stabilized a little bit to kind of identify those names that they thought would benefit from this uh, new period that we're in. And actually those that probably offered a little bit of um, kind of cyclical upside as and when economies pick up. So and names that they added to the portfolio at that stage are things like Adidas and CBRE. And also they've tried to take advantage of attractive entry prices. So companies that they really like, but probably have been a little bit too expensive for them over a period of time. So those that have come back in their price range and added to their portfolio include Estee Lauder and S&P Global, which is a, a ratings company. So quite an active period for, for the fund. Um, and it has got a very strong track record. As I said, Charles Plowden um, took on the stewardship of this fund back in 2015. Uh, and certainly over the, the last five years, it would be one of the stronger performing global uh, equity investment trusts. So again, just by way of comparison, I mean, essentially, you get next to no yield from a trust like Monk's. It's a very tiny yield, barely more than Diddley Squad, if I can put it that way. But on the other hand, you've had a lot of capital growth. The last five years have been extremely good for firms like Bailey Gifford, particularly with their growth-oriented strategies. I think the NAV is up by more than 100% over five years. So it's a completely different animal. Some periods they'll do better and other periods they won't. But it's uh, another example of the kind of diversity you get in the investment trust sector you've got two different ways to invest depends what you're looking for and the results can be quite marked difference between the two styles let's briefly move on then to another sector which is the uk smaller company sector which is one of the, again where the sectors where investment trusts have traditionally had a very strong showing but we've heard of from this week from blackrock smaller companies and there's also been a bit of an update from montanaro uk smaller companies so perhaps you could fill us in on, on those two simon so BlackRock smaller companies had their final results out to the end of February and a, a very strong period. NAV total return just short of 12 percent versus a decline in their benchmark of 1 percent. So quite an important period in the life of this company. So 
a chap called Mike Printis ran this portfolio uh, at BlackRock for a number of years. He actually retired last year and uh, a chap called Roland Arnold took over. He'd worked with him for a number of years. So there was a very much a succession, but obviously important for them to, to be shown to continue that performance record. A very diversified portfolio, nearly 130 holdings, and they've benefited from being overweight media and financial services and support services companies. Montanara UK smaller companies, they also had results out, different periods, so it was to the end of March. So in other words, it captured that period when we when the market started selling off. So their NAV total return was down uh, about 8.5%, but actually, again, that represented quite a marked outperformance of their benchmark, which was down nearly 26% in that period of time. So again, very strong relative performance record. Probably the, the of, uh, largest interest there is the manager uh, and actually founder of the of the investment management company there, Charles Montanaro, who managed this investment company from launch uh, and then had a period of time when he was less involved, has got back involved the last few years, and certainly that's coincided with an uptick in performance. He's announced that he is going to be around for at least five more years, uh, which I seem to remember David Cameron saying uh, back in 2015. But um, but Montanaro UK smaller companies, I think it's fair to say they're trying to broaden out their shareholder register. They've been um, had a lot of institutional interest over the years, but they've looked to introduce an enhanced dividend payment. So they pay or they return 1% per quarter of their net asset value as a dividend. The idea behind that is to kind of attract more retail investors or so wider shareholder base and hopefully see their benefit in terms of their narrowing discounts. So we'll see how that, that plays out. Well, I suppose you could say that a week is a long time in politics, but it's hardly a blip on the horizon of some of the uh, well-established investment trusts that go back more than 100 years. But managers do come and go, as you say, and particularly founder managers who start fund management companies. It's often quite important when they retire and move on. I guess that the uh, shareholders will take some comfort from the fact that uh, that Charles Montanaro is committed to another few years. I should say, I, I have met him. I do know him. He has this rather... Uh, Spending habit of disappearing into the jungle for a few weeks at a time, or has done in the past. He's trying to meet up with remote tribes and uh, study their anthropology. He's quite—he's a very interesting man. Let's move on then to something completely different. We talked about a number of different equity investment trusts. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the property sector. It's becoming a bit of a kind of recurrent theme. This we keep coming back to the property sector because the property sectors often investors have been relying on that also for income and for yield. But they've been having some investment trusts have been having a torrid time. Others have been doing rather better. And we've heard from quite a few this week. Perhaps you could uh, give us a kind of quick summary of who's been reporting and, and what they've been saying. Who's been doing relatively well and who's been doing relatively poorly? Yeah, so a whole range of property companies have been announcing results or providing updates. So in no particular order, we've got Picton Property Income. They had their full year results to the end of March. Their NAV total return was 4.5%. Though actually uh, their NEV was flat, so the, the the yield is quite a large part of that. Now, in that particular period to the end of March, their dividend was covered, so they paid a three and a half p. But actually, subsequently, they announced a twenty nine percent reduction in their dividend, obviously as a reflection of what's going on at the moment, and so they're yielding uh, less than than four percent at the moment. So again. It's fair to say that they strengthened their balance sheet uh, in the period they reduced their, their debt down. Uh, and obviously, that's turned out to be uh, quite a wise play. Uh, we also had interim results out from Schroeder European uh, Real Estate, and that was for the six-month period ending 31st of March. Uh, and again, their NAV was, was flat in capital terms, but their NAV total return was up 2.7%, reflecting their dividend. Again, 
Um, they've certainly not come through this period unscathed. They've got uh, a big hoarding in Seville, a shopping centre there, which has uh, been impacted and, and, and they've announced, and we were aware of this already, a reduction in their dividend. Their dividends um, come down 50%, but still yielding about 4.5%. So they are, a, as the name would suggest, a European commercial property player. They've got uh, 13 assets spread across France, Germany, Spain and the Netherlands. Also, Custodian REIT had their full-year results to the end of March, uh, NAV total return of uh, just over 1%, and uh, they had a, a covered dividend, as you might expect for that, that period of time, uh, but they've actually, again, they've reduced their dividend da- down, and this is the kind of familiar story here, that, that people to the end of 2019, or even to the end of the first quarter this year, uh, were going fine, but it's been a completely different picture uh, since then. And AEW UK REIT, again, full year results to the end of March this year, NAV total return of 3.5%. Their dividend was 8p for last year, but they've said the outlook is is highly, highly uncertain going forward. So a very difficult uh, sector for investors and for managers of asset in that sector. Probably uh, the one exception to all that is a supermarket income REIT, uh, which continues to really go from strength to strength. So there's a lot of uh, attention being paid to how people are going in terms of their rent collections for Q2. So that's the period we're in now to the end of June. And they announced uh, this week that they'd actually received 100% of their contracted uh, June payments. So again, they're very, very well placed. And unsurprisingly, they're one of the few commercial property funds that are trading on a premium at the moment, and quite a big premium in their case too. I noted down as about 15% or something of that order, a premium of 15% as opposed to uh, a couple of the others, Picton and uh, AEW are trading on at least uh, notionally on a 25 or so percent discount. So there's quite a widespread there. Uh, But of course, we don't really know what the next um, set of net asset values is going to show because when they do their valuations at the end of June, uh, next week, or they start doing the next week, when, when do we hear about them normally? It normally takes quite a long time for the with the new NAVs to come out. Is, am I right about that? You'll find out valuations as at the end of June. We'll probably start getting those uh, through, through August time. It might be a little bit delayed this year, uh, again, just for obvious reasons, but that would be the normal period. So if you're looking at the share price and the discount, you're, you're in a, a certain sense, you're kind of traveling blind a little bit because all we have are the figures to the enemies to the end of March, which was, you say, almost just at the start of the kind of viral spread and so on. So it's, uh, it's not a complete picture. So that's something we'd have to watch quite carefully and uh, it'd be possibly uh, an anxious wait in one or two cases. We mentioned before, just in passing, we might just clock the fact, if you like, that uh, we talked about the goings on at Travelodge, the budget hotel chain, and the fact that they have gone into what's called a voluntary arrangement with their creditors. But that's now been resolved, has it not? It has. Um, that got voted through. So it's a basically a way of negotiating with Travelodge how best to proceed. So Travelodge clearly want to keep use of their, their sites, um, but they're obviously struggling to make their rental payments. So um, what LXI REIT have said is that by the end of 2021, they will have received uh, 100% of the rent, but that's going to be on a more extended period. Um, and also under the CVA, the creditors' voluntary agreement, uh, they can break certain of the leases with Travelodge. So if they need to get back certain of the properties, they can. But it's it's a way of proceeding, which in theory at least should be equitable to both sides. So that's talking about commercial property. Let's move on and talk about private equity. But before that, we might just mention one of the... Uh, Renewable Energy Investment Trust, which is slightly different, we haven't mentioned it before. It's called Aquila, 
Renewables or Aquila Renewables. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. And they're slightly different. Their kind of geographic focus is somewhat different from the other ones in the sector or some of the other ones in the sector. Uh, perhaps you could uh, fill us in on that one, Simon. So, yeah, this is one of the new entrants into the renewable energy infrastructure subsector. It's been a very popular area. This was launched in June last year. It raised just under 150 million uh, euros and raised some more money in March this year. But actually, as its name would suggest, rather than as most of its peers do invest in the UK, marketplace is actually invested uh, in, in Europe. So it takes a while to kind of get your money into the ground with these kind of assets. Um, and I think the idea is that eventually it will be split between 40% wind, 40% solar and the balance in hydropower. At the moment, uh, it's more invested in wind, just short of 90% is invested in wind with the balance in hydropower. So not much going on in the way of solar at the moment. But once fully invested and up and running, um, you know, they're targeting returns of between six and seven and a half percent of which a large element will come back uh, as a dividend. So it's still relatively early days. And it probably explains why, compared with their peers, certainly they're trading at one of the smaller premium levels. The whole sector is trading on a, on a premium, more or less. But that's on one of the smaller premiums. Yes. And it's fair to say that this sector is probably didn't really exist 10 years ago. And yet there's already some very large uh, trusts in the sector. There's a lot of potential liquidity there. I'm, I'm looking through the list. A couple of them are more than two billion in uh, terms of market cap. And we've got about four or five in the 600, 700 million range. So this really has become a very popular sector. Perhaps we just quickly just rehearse what is the idea. They're investing in renewable energy. And how come that the renewable energy projects they invest in can generate the kind of returns that we're talking about? And we're talking about sort of steady returns in the five to ten percent rate or five to eight percent range perhaps as you say most of which will come through as uh, income i suppose the question here is you know how sustainable are these yields that they are talking about we mentioned that last week perhaps you could just remind us what the picture is there and why these are so attractive to investors at the moment basically they invest in or oh, they will be invested when, when they're fully invested in a whole range of uh, wind solar and hydropower and the idea is that they have quite good visibility over a long period of time in terms of their earning streams of these various projects that they're backing. Now, uh, some of them, uh, and indeed this is the case in some of the UK-focused renewable infrastructure plays, um, are backed by subsidies. And that's obviously been quite an attractive element, though it's fair to say that those subsidies, certainly in the UK marketplace, are no longer as readily available. So you have a greater exposure to the power price. And that's been a bit of a headwind for those UK-focused funds, because obviously uh, the power price has been, uh, broadly speaking, down over the last 12 months. And that's hit some of those, those NAVs. But in terms of the, of the yields that they throw off, you get a great deal of predictability from uh, asset classes such as solar and wind. Obviously, that within, within a range, some years are windier than others, to be honest, but uh, you can actually plot out over quite a long period of time the, the output that this kind of kit will throw off. And so from an investor looking for a steady source of yield, in theory, they should be quite attractive. So let's then move on to private equity. You've been talking to a couple of uh, private equity uh, funds this week. There have been some results and I think there have been some briefings as well. Let's talk about uh, Harbour Vest and uh, Princess, which is a nice name for an investment trust. Tell us about these two and what they've been experiencing. So um, Harbour Vest Global Private Equity, they had their annual results out to the end of January. Again, you know, the world was a very different place at that time. But in that 12-month period, their NEV was up nearly 
15%. But what was more interesting uh, was how it's actually performed since then. And they, they did uh, provide an update how they've done till the end of May. And unsurprisingly, their NAV is down over that period, which is down uh, 7%. So that would compare quite well with public markets over that period of time. It's a hugely, hugely diversified uh, portfolio. So this is literally a fund of private equity funds. So incredibly diverse. They've done a review um, kind of from the bottom up of the likely impact from COVID-19 on the portfolio. And they think the vast majority is in a kind of low to moderate impact. The balance sheet, they're sitting with a, a large, I mean, it's a large company, this, but they're sitting with cash of over $200 million uh, and they have an undrawn credit facility of double that, $400 million. So even though their unfunded commitments are $1.7 billion, uh, they're very confident that they will be able to meet those commitments as and when they come up. Uh, but a good insight into uh, the private equity world. Um, I think it's fair to say that the expectation is that, that we will see further valuation decreases just in general across the, the private equity space. Uh, again, not dissimilar to what we were talking about earlier with regards to property. So we're looking at valuations now. Most companies, uh, investment companies, including Princess, actually have come out and given us some indication of where they were at the end of March. And those uh, valuation declines were not too bad in most cases. But it's what happens for that next quarter. What are we going to see as and when we, we get the numbers to the end of June? And certainly the team at Arborvest were guiding that they would expect to see further valuation declines in general. There's actually perhaps three subsectors in the private equity space, maybe more actually. Uh, the, the most important ones are some that invest directly. In other words, they're making investments into individual companies. And then there are others which are fund of funds, which is like uh, the one Harborvest you just mentioned, which invest in other uh, private equity funds. Uh, and then also we've got a relative newcomer to the, uh, to the private equity sector called Merion Chrysalis. And of course, uh, some of you will know that uh, Merion was a, sort of startup fund management company, but it's uh, now merged with Jupiter, a larger competitor, who was former competitor. Uh, they've now just about to complete their merger. So tell us what they do. How are they different from Princess and from Harvest? What, what are the differences in what they're doing? So Marion Chrysalis is a very interesting uh, investment company. It uh, hasn't been going that, that long, to be honest, but they had interim results out this week for the six months to the end of March. And again, interestingly, at the start of the period, so that would be back in September, they were sitting on quite a lot of cash, 55% in cash. They just raised some additional capital just ahead of that. And what we saw over that six-month period is them deploying that money. So actually, where we are today is that they are now 90% invested in 11 companies. So we talked about Harborvest, hugely diversified, thousands and thousands of underlying companies. In the case of Marion Chrysalis, it's 11 and what they're looking for here is, well, they call it tech-enabled businesses. So these are high-growth, technology-orientated businesses. So the three largest holdings are companies called TransferWise, Starling Bank, that some people may have heard of, and GraphCore. And again, it's quite chunky. They'll all be 10% positions, those three companies, plus uh, of their net asset value. But they're really looking to generate significant growth. So I think in the in the report, the chairman talked about this is a period where they deployed their capital and now they're looking for the kind of the growth phase before phase three would be the exit phase, obviously all being well. So with that kind of vehicle, you have a lot of high what we call stock specific risk. So if something goes wrong, it's going to hurt your NAV performance, which is not necessarily the case with, with Harborvest because of that diversification. But again, if you get one or two of these names right and they really generate the growth that obviously the investment team believe they're capable of, then it can move the NAV on considerably. So I guess it's an open question in a way, having cash to deploy at the current time, whether that is a positive or negative, I suppose the positive is that the, the markets have slowed down 
economies have gone into lockdown and you'd think on the face of it that might make getting involved in some of these startup companies you might be getting a bit nervous it, uh, easier to find good bargains if you like on the other hand of course the epidemic has uh, shown us how valuable online techie businesses can be so i guess it's a bit of a half a dozen of one and six of the other have they said anything about that or is it too early to tell whether the uh, you know the opportunities they're actually getting by by chance because of the pandemic are are better than they would otherwise have been. Certainly, the kind of uh, you know there'll be one or two exceptions, but again, the majority of the portfolio they've made it quite clear is trading well through the as they've called it the pandemic effective period, uh, and that continues uh, not just at the end of March but in the subsequent months as well. So I think they are quite bullish, quite positive on the prospects of their companies, and given they are tech enabled businesses, then unsurprisingly they're. Um, less exposed to the kind of day-to-day problems that many businesses have. You know, transfer-wise, sending money across borders uh, on, a, on a platform, you know, not really affected by what's been going on. Starling Bank is an online bank, so again, not really impacted. And, you know, I could go on. So they are very positive on, on the prospects. I suppose the other thing, looking at the sector overall, it's interesting that obviously there's some very large private equity funds involved in the investment trust uh, space. But there's a quite a wide sort of divergence of, for example, if you look at the yields, again, some of them do pay quite useful yields, others others don't pay anything at all. So again, you've got this kind of, um, some people call the zoo effect, there's a lot of different choices out there, uh, and some will do well in certain circumstances, and some will do other, well in other circumstances, and they will appeal to different kinds of investors. But uh, is there a kind of way we should think about private equity in terms of whether or not it's a yield play or not? I mean, it's not normally an asset class you would associate with yield um, in conventional private equity. Clearly, there is, there is, you can invest in private equity debt. That's a, that's a different asset class, arguably. But for equity investors in, in private equity, it's about the capital growth. I mean, effectively, what you're trying to do with private equity is at least double your money within a reasonable period of time. That's the kind of rule of thumb. And that, that comes back as, as capital growth. Again, historically, people have seen private equity as quite cyclical, quite reliant on debt, and it needs the IPO market to be open and a lot of investment activity. Arguably, what we've seen across the the sector uh, over the last five to 10 years is a kind of swivel towards investing in more uh, tech-orientated businesses and in more healthcare names. And many people would argue that these are more kind of secular growth stories. So for example, HD Capital, which has become really very focused on tech over the last few years, always had an element, but it's become increasingly so. And people would argue that that type of portfolio is going to be less vulnerable to an economic downturn. But again, we will see how this plays out. Absolutely. And again, it's a question of you need to understand what the trusts are doing, the different kind of ways in which they're operating, the maturity of the businesses they're investing in and so on. You're quite right about that. Finally, a couple of updates. Um, We ought to just complete the story about uh, what's been happening at European Opportunities Trust. Uh, We talked about that last week. And we noted that uh, there'd been controversy, indeed scandal, perhaps at uh, the largest investee company that the trust had been investing. It's a company called Wirecard. It's a payments company based in Germany and a member of the DAX index, the German equivalent to the FTSE or well, a broad equivalent anyway. So let's update what's been going on. Last week, we, I think we heard that the, uh, there were definitely were accounting irregularities at Wirecard. But what's been happening since then, Simon? So this, as you remember, was the largest uh, holding in European Opportunities Trust, Alexander Darwell's fund. And uh, the news came on Thursday last week that the auditors couldn't find evidence of 1.9 
billion euros. Uh, and actually, Alexander Darwell sold out of his holding that same day, which turned out to be a very good decision uh, because since then, the company has gone into administration and subject to, as you might imagine, a huge inquiry and possibly criminal prosecution as well. So it was, although a painful experience for him and for investors in European opportunities, the fact that he walked away, I think most people would agree, was undoubtedly a good move. Yes, otherwise he'd be in for a long period of uh, uh, uncertainty about what the outcome was going to be. So he did well to sell it. Uh, how have the shares reacted to this? How have investors reacted to the news of, here we have a well-known, respected uh, fund manager with a long uh, track record, uh, having to concede that his largest investment has gone into administration. I mean, that's very unusual, is it not? Yes, I mean, obviously, very, very infrequently, we do see uh, examples of fraud uh, in publicly listed companies. Fortunately, it's, it's highly infrequent, but it has caught managers out uh, in the past, particularly, it's fair to say, probably those investing in emerging markets and, and, and Asia. And I think uh, probably any long-standing investment manager there will, will have some war stories to tell. But it's you know incredibly rare to see one of, of such a large holding. But to answer your question directly, European opportunities it obviously did take a hit to the, the NAV and the share price uh, as a result, but it's trading on about a 10% discount now. And there's been some very positive media commentary around uh, Alexander Darwell and what he's achieved, because I think as we talked about last week, his long-term track record uh, with this fund, and it was previously called Jupiter European Opportunities, is still very, very strong. So clearly uh, a very disappointing episode uh, in the life of this investment trust and, and obviously in his career. But it would, it would appear uh, that many people are kind of looking through this and looking at the uh, his long-term track record. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the coming weeks. Simon, we come to the end. I've got one more interesting thing caught my eye this week, and I think caught your eye too. And uh, that is uh, an interesting disposal by one of the investment trusts we haven't talked about before, but which is uh, quite an interesting one in its own way. And it's called Manchester and London, which is a uh, splendidly uh, entitled trust. Uh, I imagine that's got some historical roots or, or some reason why it's called that. Tell us what they've just disposed of uh, and announced to the market or revealed to the market. So uh, Manchester and London announced this week that it had sold its two Wimbledon Centre Court debentures. And this followed the, the tournament's cancellation this year, again, for obvious reasons. Uh, and actually, they consulted shareholders as well. So previously, they were running a scheme. So any shareholders who owned more than 2,500 shares in their investment trust could enter a draw and win a pair of tickets for one of the 13 days of that particular year's tournament. So uh, they've dispensed with this, no more Wimbledon, no more draws, uh, and instead the proceeds will be reinvested back in the portfolio, which is a very interesting portfolio. It's been tilted towards uh, high growth technology companies, uh, and that would explain why uh, it's certainly one of the strongest performers now in the, in the global uh, peer group not too far behind uh, names such as Scottish Mortgage Trust and Linzel Train. Well, that's a very interesting note on which to end. I have to say I do not myself, unfortunately, own a Wimbledon debenture. Uh, I wish I did. But I imagine that it's actually been quite a good investment as well as uh, they seem to have used it as a perk for shareholders, a sort of disguised perk for shareholders. But I'm sure the shareholders who uh, benefited from it were quite happy. But uh, has it been a good investment? Do they give any details about how much they, they got for it and... Uh, how much they paid for it. I, I imagine they probably didn't. It's probably too small they, for they, that, They kept uh, tight-lipped, but one would assume they probably uh, did reasonably well out of it. I think we can take that as a red. <laughs> in, in the way that tennis has developed and so on, 
I'm sure it's uh, been reasonably sound investment. I'll, I'll make a note to try and find out myself what the uh, performance of Wimbledon Adventures has been. Simon, thank you very much. It is, of course, Wimbledon week next week, but it's not happening. So no strawberries and cream for you or for me if we were to go there, which uh, we certainly won't be doing that now. And I look forward to discussing investment trust matters with you again next week. I would just like to give another mention to the fact that we will be doing what I believe is going to be a live podcast on July the 11th at the Mellow virtual event. It's a chance where you'll not only hear us uh, talking, but a chance to put some questions if you'd like to, and you can uh, see us in action. Of course, doing any kind of live performance runs the risk of uh, technological meltdown or technological mishap, but uh, we're going to give it a go, and I hope you'll uh, join us there if you uh, like what we've been doing. So that's it for this week. Thank you, Simon, yet again. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.